0: Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. There's an old adage, you have to go through hell before you get to heaven. Uh, All religion, (laughs) religious connotations, religiosity set aside. I think though that most of us when we think of heaven and hell, (laughs) think of it as with hell being awful, Terrible, horrible, and that, what is heaven? In contrast, uh, maybe that is as much the podcast will be speaking of not necessarily heaven and hell, uh, but the idea that you do have to go through awful, horrible, terrible in order to possibly feel best or better. Uh, But maybe because we are wired that way, because we think of it in those terms, we don't know one except that we go through the other. And with that, even our operational systems, commonly so, all human operational systems, really begins with primary registry, (laughs) sensorium, input, um, reactive sort of thinking, reflexive Sort of behaviorally so. Stimulus response. Real simplistic. If it causes pain, you're to avoid it. If it causes pleasure or brings with it pleasure, you're to approach it. If it feels good, do more of it. If it feels bad, don't do it again. It's not very sophisticated. It doesn't always work. There is always the element of instrumental, or at least the notion concept of instrumental, which means you can go through hell to get to heaven. Maybe even as you would know then, you're going through hell. Heaven's on the other side of it. And I'm going to go ahead and do this because I know, though it's not pleasurable, it doesn't bring me immediate instantaneous gratification. Nonetheless, it's important enough I could see long term, long range that that's going to be better off for me, possibly those around me. That's all higher sort of ordered thinking. The lesser, maybe in the sense of less sophisticated, but it works. <laughs> Primary, again, operations is emotional thinking, fight or flight, survival. Maybe that's why everything that comes in is first processed initially whether it's a threat or whether it feels good. And should we get stuck there, we may not apply higher order logic and reasoning. Some, I would even contend, that never really get to the place of learning that because either there's so much threat in their life, aka trauma, maybe they grew up with a family circumstance or dynamic where that wasn't modeled, wasn't taught, wasn't demonstrated, maybe they're just genetically wired that way to be much more emotional. Personality traits would be histrionic, hysterical, dramatic. But that would probably sentence you to a lot of hell then, I would think. Especially if there's no heaven on the other side of it, or you couldn't see past it. To get to a place of some resolve, even so, restoration, more so, as we'll get to the article here in a moment. A sense of right and wrong, or a sense of righteousness in the wrong, or of the wrong, and justice served. And contentment that's another example of that. If you're really, really hungry, (laughs) hunger being a primary drive, then you may think of it in terms of starving, and starving being attached to death, that certainly then would not only conceptually represent the ultimate of bad things, painful things along the way, but that notion, though, that more than psychologically, the pain... Of the hunger then drives you, as with primary drives, to eat. The hungrier you are, possibly then when you eat, the more satisfied. It wouldn't be that you couldn't be, as they used to call it, a grazer throughout the entire day. Just eating little portions here and there. I don't know. I always, maybe this speaks to my personality. I always like to go to the point of robust with just about everything. And with that, then, I would prefer, at least conceptually, and maybe even so as that might translate to some material dimension, actual behavior, I'd probably put that off, endure the hunger a bit, just so that I could have that great sense of satisfaction, At the end of either the day or when the time would come, whenever that might be over the course of a day, it's time to eat. Uh, (laughs) It's a bit of binging and purging in that, I think, or could be, and maybe even addictions could be that way. My point is this, though, it's implicitly in us, humans, to do something like this at a very base level, this dynamic. And with that then, why we probably run greater risk, some more than others, for complications, literally, materially, and bodily aspect, uh, but physically, but psychologically as well. Devon Fry who is a staff writer of Psychology Today, January, February of 2024, article entitled, That's Horrible! I'm Hooked! Disgusting scenes may make crime dramas feel more satisfying. Procedural police shows, such as Bones or CSI, vary in their details, but most follow the same general formula. A crime is committed, an investigation is carried out, and justice, in the end, is served. One key piece of that formula is often an early scene that elicits physical revulsion. The discovery of a rotting corpse, say... Or the witnessing of a violent murder. Disgust feels bad. So why do we keep watching? It may be that our brief discomfort renders the final resolution more satisfying, a new study suggests. Study participants watched clips from an episode of Bones in which a young man is murdered. Some watched a version that contained graphic images of his decomposing corpse. Others watched a control version with this edited out. As expected, those who watched the disgusting scene felt more unhappy and enjoyed it less than those who saw the control. Yet, participants who saw the graphic version also rated the man's murder as more serious than those who had seen the control. And when they learned that the episode ends with the man's killers being apprehended, those who had watched the disgusting clip felt significantly more satisfied. Disgust may therefore play a pivotal role in our love of crime dramas. Because it makes the murders seem more serious. The ultimate justice feels all the sweeter. Study author Marcus Wardley of CSU San Marcos speculates that if viewers were left unsatisfied, such grisly scenes could feel gratuitous, even off putting. On balance, we have to get more positive emotions out of consuming something. Otherwise, we don't or wouldn't do it. Devon Fry, Psychology Today, article entitled That's Horrible, I'm Hooked. Disgusting scenes may make crime dramas feel more satisfying. <laughs> maybe it's true. Uh, maybe that is as before reading the article what I was trying to capture on today's podcast. And with that, we're wired (laughs) that way. Um, It's kind of, I don't know the correct word. It's a little, I want to say disappointing, (laughs) at least to me. That there's not more choice in it or that something could not be as with choice, we might have it, we could pick something that on the front end of it, looking at it strategically so, trying to sort of engineer it in such a way that we could remove all of the grisly, all the disgusting, all the horrible and life would just be (laughs) calm Peaceful. And maybe there's much to be said for that, but at the same time, though, aren't we wired? Isn't it then going to be going against the basic wiring, whether it's physiological or psychological, or as the two, everything's physiological, but the psychological and the constructs that go along with it, they're all calibrated, though, to a life an existence, even so an environment that has at least some degree of threat and overcoming threat and then knowing the right way, I suppose, to kind of not get too far out there. Maybe so, not become so addicted even. I think there's an addiction dimension. There's certainly adrenal junkies. There's individuals who are addicted to dramas. That's kind of disappointing though, to think with that ideal in mind that we could be in heaven all the time. I don't want to say that it's not possible, I would not want to say it's not something we shouldn't aspire to. I wouldn't want to say then we should create hell just so that we could get to heaven. (laughs) But I do want to say, I don't know that you can get to heaven without going through hell. Uh, Some might even argue all of life, in material sense, because it is so innately and Intimately connected to death <laughs> means that if you're going to find life, you definitely have to get past the hell of it and find something very, very good about it. It could be instrumental. Maybe that's how the two systems therein, in and with calibration, are really supposed to operate. Emotional thinking, fight or flight. <laughs> I called it earlier, the podcast of the lesser. It's not necessarily lesser and less functional. It's just, again, who would want to live through too much of that? Who would want to be reactive? Who would want to be histrionic? Who would want to be dramatic? Unless you're addicted to that. And therein, maybe all addictions go in that same direction. If you're catching my drift, as we used to say. But it's the overcoming that seems to be much more gratuitous. The knowing how to get past the hell, to finding the pathway to heaven. It is a higher ordered, more rational, logical, reasoned perspective. Although, I'm not sure that is even in and of itself satisfying enough, lest we become all Mr. Spock's. As with Star Trek, for those of you who may be a Star Trek or Trekkie Star Trek fan, back in the so-called day, logical, reasoned. And though he was quite capable of some emotion, very rarely showed it. I don't know. <laughs> Again, that just seems Disappointing. But I could also say, well, why would we want to live out of the scope of some range then? Let's say strategically in an engineering, social engineering sort of context. We could say, well, we'll have this much and that much. Or we'll go ahead and sanction this, but we won't sanction that. Or murders off the table and homicides off the table. But I would want to say, though I'm sure the study is not complete and the data and findings are not in yet, to really say anything with much confidence. But for the sake of theory, and if you will indulge me, I think COVID and the COVID lockdown is a really good example of that. The world shut down. Stimulation input was limited. Most individuals were quite safe in their nestled, in their confines of wherever they hunkered down to ride out the storm. And with that, surrounded by individuals, hopefully, too, which, whether they were more naturally inclined to be, compatriots and on their team became quite quickly compatriots and on their team. We're all in this together. And yet what have we seen, not during COVID, <laughs> that would any way, shape, or form be overly dramatized, grisly, awful, except to say the deaths that resulted and therein an implicit fear, and I suppose I probably need to acknowledge that. The fear was there, there was just no personification, manifestation, expression of it in a legitimate Who's the enemy? Where's the enemy? You didn't know. Sort of way. And then what have we done since then? You could argue we were going (laughs) this direction before COVID. And that COVID just was either fortuitous or in some sort of less than fortuitous way. Something that came along to enhance the experience. But things have gotten crazier it seems, post-COVID. I think that in represents a bit of hell. (laughs) Depends, I suppose, on how you look at it. A lot of drama. A lot of fight-or-flight, emotional, reactive thinking. Where's the science? We kept asking the question. Where's the science? Let's get back to empiricism, which then would be logic and reasoning higher ordered human thought let's get back to at least some semblance of normal if we're going to have in these enemy moments or these personifications of of a threat and if we've got to come up with something that we're going to fight or something that deserves fighting or there's going to be some drama in life that's sort of representative of hell Let's not forget that all of this occurred on the heels as well of the opioid epidemic. Let's get back to normal, not opioid epidemic. But let's sanction what is crazy and evil and Let's know who the good guys are, and they get bad guys or good girls or bad girls, or the good thems or the good the bad thems. So that we can get back to righteousness, sense of righteousness. It's not self-imposed. It's not even, again, toward any theological, religious, political even sort of paradigm. It can be. I'm not talking about that. I'm just speaking of the basic, innate, human inclination of you have to go through hell to get to heaven. It's the way... The operational systems work. And if they don't work. Or they're not given opportunity. In that sort of maybe acceptable range. Tolerable range of expression. Then maybe with an incident like COVID. Where something is held back. When it's finally released. It's like what I was saying earlier. About binging and purging. It's like. Uh, there's, I have to admit it. I'm guilty of that. Sometimes hunger is a great anticipation of contentment and gratification that comes from eating a lot of great food. It tastes better. It, it's more satisfying. If Your appetite is voracious and you just want to eat. I'm sure there's a lot of biochemistry as well as psychopathology that goes along with that. But it is, I think, in the human construction to be that way, and maybe that's where all psychopathology comes from. Maybe that's where all disorder comes from. And without some degree of at least social engineering, social psychology, or some mechanism of correction, or at least some sense of in mores and and standards of normal, even, if we don't rein it in, or at least prescriptively so, say what is acceptable in a cultural sort of way, a social way, or with socialization, we don't bring individuals up to rightly sort of fit into what we consider to be the normal. In our abnormalities, our extremes, It seems it would breed more malcontent or discontent. When are we going to find contentment? If you eat all the time, you don't get that great feeling of... But possibly satisfaction, contentment. Maybe that's the other side of it too. Maybe we just need to socially engineer it. I just don't think we're going to engineer that out of us. It's hardwired in us. There were in former times for humans, legitimate threats that could kill us on a daily basis. We could starve to death. Um, We could freeze to death. We could not procreate and go extinct. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that we put higher order sort of thoughts to that are just instinctual or in that survival sort of way. Drives, much like primary drives, much like Again hunger there 's sleep there 's just a lot of those things that are just basic to bodily operation and function and as I moment moments ago mentioned everything is physiological it 's all construct in terms of our humanity. But the physiology supports it and if you're not alive it does not matter what you think you're not going to be thinking or at least the thought of thinking higher ordered or whatever it is is not going to matter because you're not going to be alive just ask someone who's a drug addict and pushes that envelope to that point of whether it's the drugs within the potential for overdosing lethality Implicit to whatever substance they are therein, their drug of choice, their preference, uh, or maybe just all the ill consequences that go with it that results in them having no resource or limited resource living on the street under bridges, or those who have mental health or psychological disorders, because we have not done a good job culturally of either addressing those concerns, or maybe we've inadvertently somehow promoted them by not recognizing we need to take more preventative action. Primary care, maybe it does need to be turned toward this sort of social engineering, but whatever it is, good luck. Trying to calibrate that out of some human paradigm, even science. It just seems like there's way too many variables and factors, but we could do a better job. I think psychological counseling goes in that same direction, all of those things. It's just with the individual. Sometimes we get a cultural effect, most often, it's just families for me. The individual's part of a social network. Maybe it's extended family, maybe industrial psychology, uh, social psychology. There's sports psychology that captures more the team. (laughs) Multiple individuals that comprise the team. But supposing everything has a one person at a time aspect to it, I do my little part. (laughs) Maybe it's a big part if it's foundational. But that's really what it's about. We try to take a look at your physiology. We try to take a look at the genetics. We try to then take a look at then the social learning. We take a look at the social, psychosocial, environmental influence, threats, traumas. We take a look at the economic resources. We take a look at the privileged as well as the disadvantaged aspects Of where you, unfortunately, just so happened to be born. We do all of that with the intent of trying to do a bit of calibration. The good news is, it's something that's done collaboratively with you. It's not left to an individual or a select few. Which is probably the best way to make sure. Because if it is one individual at a time, we know that when it comes to research the larger the numbers, the more validity that you could probably take from whatever it is that you're studying. But I would say then that's got to be in some manner connected to the larger the numbers as far as caucus input, opinion, uh, influence, the better the chances that it's going to be in some way better for all. In that way, more uh, relatable to all have some sort of valid (laughs) something to say about all in the way of adapting or adaptability and health, especially as it might therein be tied to reducing (laughs) legitimately the threats. I think that's interesting too to consider. There was a time back in the 90s when most of this (laughs) grizzly really came to more mass awareness, movies, television. Then there wasn't so much the social media, there wasn't TikTok, there wasn't YouTube. But there was a lot of exposure. (laughs) Maybe that's contributed to where we've gotten to as far as all the social ills, the extremes, the hysteria, the histrionics, the drama, even so, within now are institutions that were supposed to be drama-free. There's drama everywhere. People seem to be reactive all the time. There's emotional thinking at every turn. We just need to maybe say, well, how far back does it go in our study, in our theory? And how do we, again, want to engineer it? How do we want to calibrate it? I'm hoping we get to some place of satisfaction soon. Lest we break it, I suppose you could be broken. I mean, there's a good chance that you might like to starve yourself. And then when it comes time to eat, not have any food. That would be a good thing. Or it's one thing for you to starve yourself so that you could get that great sense of contentment by then feasting. And another thing, to be starved because there is no food because of social disorder or the breakdown of society. Uh, We could go on and on. I'm just thankful that (laughs) my world, where I have my input to the end of trying to assist in mitigating some of these legitimate risks, because it is all tied to primary drives, life or death. I'm just glad that I mostly have to deal with the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, the APA, as well as draw from all my years of education and studies and experience, empirical sort of experiences of practicing psychological counseling to help you. And as best as I can tell, we've not gone to hell yet in a handbasket. And maybe we could bring a bit of heaven back to it. Should you be, I like the article by the way, uh, <laughs> if you can't tell, should you be interested in reaching out to me, you can contact me at thewordhouse.com or at least find me there online. Contact me me at drndclay at the wordhouse.com. You can call 304 523 9673, which is Word. Uh, you can catch us for the next podcast uh, so that this is all fair and just and equitable. Uh, go to the Psychology Today website. You'll find me there, but there'll be all sorts of other options. I don't want this just to be about promoting me or you coming to see me. I'm here to try to help you find the best help for you. But check them out. Check all the providers out. Check them out. Check out Psychology Today. And you can come back to our next edition of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We drop it weekly and you'll find it on the platform of your choice. Until we get a chance, however, to do this again, I want to wish you the best of not only good mind health, just good health, good mental health, good behavioral health. And I just want to wish you, I suppose. A little bit of heaven in your life. A bit of happiness. Until we get a chance to meet again. Thanks.